During the coronavirus crisis and lockdown, Rabbi Katz will be delivering an informal pre-Mincha study session on Zoom every day at 6.50 p.m. If you're interested in joining, please send an email to rabbidkatz at gmail.com indicating that you would like to be added to the Zoom meeting, and you'll then be sent the link to access the Zoom learning session. Hi, it's Wednesday. It's shoot jump board. A bit woozy boozy. But I'll try my best. Uh, it's a crazy week for all of us, I'm sure. I just found out from the coronavirus business that, um, besides the fact that I have a son like many of you come trying to come back from Israel from Yeshiva, I don't know what's going to happen with that, but my university just told me this must be happening all over the country. No more uh, classes. You got to teach it all online, you know. You got to do this uh, computer screen like Skype everything, which I'm not used to. So this is going to be a bummer of a time. But uh, as I said, I can't worry about all that right now. Let me see if I can knock this off. I'm going to do the Parsha today because my head's not holding in anything else. A little weary from yesterday. Um, but the Parsha kind of lends itself because it's Kisisa, right? It's Kisisa. That's about the golden cap. That's an easy one. Um, and I'll tell you what I mean. Um, and I do want to thank everybody, by the way, who came and the people who the number of people sent contributions on porn from being that was very nice. Appreciate all that. Now, um, you got the golden calf. As far as I see it, this year, you have a very interesting story in Shemos with many themes. One of them would be what I would call the enemy outside and the enemy inside. We have two enemies that appear to threaten the Jewish people once they leave Egypt, A and B. One is called Amalek, that's last week the Pasha Zohar. The other one's called Egel Zov. Now, what's the difference? Well, Amalek is external enemy. And it's very interesting to me that Amalek is always associated with picking off the stragglers. I mentioned this in my show, actually. Uh, that, you know, those who are in the cloud and the safe in the Jewish camp, as we would say today, in the Machna, were safe. But the ones who straggled behind... Amalek picked them off. Uh, this is how we live in the Middle East today. As everybody knows, you know, you if you're in Israel, you want to be with a group. It's not good to be left behind and be the last one leaving because the security in the road is not that great a lot of times, especially in Shtachim. Uh, is what it is. Is what it is. I'll use an example that I think many of you will probably understand. If you ever dive on Friday night by the Kotel, and then you walk back through the Shuk, you know, to go straight to Meisharm or something like that, to Gula. So you want to leave with the whole group, right? When everybody else leaves, and they go through the Arab Shuk. Now you can go by yourself, but it's not the smartest thing in the world, even though there are a lot of cops there. And Amalek represents the Kayach, the force that already in the old days, whenever any Jews were, uh, you know, uh, what shall I say, straggling behind. Uh, not with the others, perhaps living on border areas, uh, they would kill them. They would pick them off. We even have such a concept in halacha, just comes to mind. You can't make irani dachas on a border city. Remember that? Dari far. can't make irani dachas. Because in the border areas, there are extra rules. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's particularly vulnerable. And here, the people that didn't fought, weren't in the camp uh, got knocked off. This is the story of American Jewry today, to some degree or another. Those who are not in the machna, so to speak, uh, get picked off by a Moloch. Uh This is why you and I spend so much money 
living in a Jewish neighborhood and paying for the Jewish education and all that stuff. Everybody knows one of the biggest problems being Orthodox Jew in America today. It costs a lot of money. Right? Theoretically, it costs a lot of money. And I live in Baltimore where it's not the worst. You're in New York area and the, you know, Teaneck area. And the, you know, the, the tuitions are double. The houses are double. It's crazy. No, it's literally very, very difficult, sometimes impossible, a person to live the lifestyle of an Orthodox Jew. And a modern Orthodox Jew, like they always, you know, you read a hundred places. I mean, I have friends to live as they said before in Riverdale, Teaneck, and all those kind of places. You got to make double and triple what you make over here. And that's just to, you know, keep things even. So, uh, but we do. We work our heads off and other parts of the body. And you do so to send your kids, you know, so your daughter should go to that seminary and the kids should go to the summer camp. The Gansa business, you're working like crazy so they'll be betocha machne and they won't in the summer or some other time be chutzla machne straggling behind because you send them straggling behind to get picked up by a Amalek. Now what's ironic in American Jewry today, particularly in the modern Orthodox, is parents will spend a fortune keeping their kids, like I said before, in the day school situation. I use it, it just for expression. You know, teenage situation. You know, you will pay all that extra money, and then the, and then they'll go for a year gap year to Israel. You know, they'll go to Yeshiva over there, KBY, whatever, and then they'll come back and go to regular Ivy League college. <laughs> you know, you go to Harvard, Yale, puts in the pan, this and that, and the other. In which case, you're sending them outside the machna, and many times it happens. And we, I already sound like a rabbi today. Many times it happens that uh, when you go in that year, uh, you know, you 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 leave the camp. Uh, Bridget meets Bernie, you know, a boy meets girl. And it happens all the time. Listen, I teach in college. I know what I'm talking about. So do you. It happens all the time. And it's kind of funny. They spend a million dollars at least, you know, keeping the kid inside the unknown, inside the camp. And then, sort of deliberately, because of the necessities of modern education, in order to be able to get a superior education, superior job, send them to a place which isn't YU and it's not Stern. And uh, things happen. And so the Amalek, let's put it this way, from the perspective of modern American Jewry, if a parent loses his child or son or daughter or whatever to that process, that's a kind of Amalek. It's not the exact Amalek like uh, yesteryear, but it's so interesting to me that Amalek is associated with the rejection of the bris milah. You know, that they threw the, the arl upstairs, whatever the matter says. Uh, and rejection of bris milah is rejection of separateness. You understand? And this is what the college represents today. It's kind of uh, an interesting uh, paradigm, shall we say. Uh, and so, therefore, we're told never forget to fight against Amalek because uh, it might seem in different forms, perhaps, and they're getting a little homiletical, but nevertheless, it's true, putting aside the historical questions that I raised last week, which are real questions, but putting that totally aside. And one or two of you send me these disquisitions from Moshe Soloveitchik. I know all about all that, but I'm just, I'm not that stupid. But... Uh, having said that, you know, the the historic Amalek will put aside. But the other Amalek, shall I say the homiletic Amalek, is a reality. Uh, you know, you should remember the, the fight against Amalek, the door-door. Um, in America, the Amalek now, the one I'm referring to now, is the problem of assimilation to imagine, you know, the Benos Moabas, they say, call it whatever you want to call it. And it is a problem, and I'm not saying anything that you don't know is true. Nobody's got a solution to this, because at the end of the day, a lot of people want to get a good education. I don't blame them. Um, I teach at university. I, uh, it makes 100% sense. On the other hand, you have the other problem. So what do you do? So that's one type of problem that Jewish people encounter paradigmatically, paradigmatically in the book of Shemos right after they leave Egypt. 
you know, you think you were out of, uh, you know, trouble, now you're outside of Mitzrayim, you crossed the Red Sea, wiped out the Egyptian army, not true, by Yavah Malik, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And uh, it's just, there's so many of these hints they find in these different Chazals, like Berfidim, Rafi, Yedem, and Atorah, uh, I know all the uh, Vorts on there, but the fact that they're using Rafi Deim and Torah means to say that the Malik is a function of the weakening of the Jewish solidarity, the Jewish identity. This is a problem we have today. Now, that's one kind of uh, threat. But then you have another one, which is so fascinating, and that's this week's Parsha, Kisisa. Because here the problem happens in Betocha Machana. The Golden Calf episode, my friends, takes place at the foot of Sinai. <laughs> Correct? Again, the Golden Calf episode... When the Jews make the golden calf and they party, the whole business, the parties, the orgies, whatever they had over there, is at the foot of Sinai. And at the top, uh, the, uh, the, the, the cloud is rumbling. Notice Moses goes up for 40 days and 40 nights, and he went to Arafel, and it was a Keshachel, so while all that is going at the mountain, and we know Harsina is not that tall, that's what we're told, right? So it's not that far away, it's mind boggling. In the presence of all that, they say, let's go make a, 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 a calf. And they do, of course. They make it out of gold, not any other material. And uh, it's quite a story. <laughs> now, wait a second. That didn't happen, Michutz Lamachaneh. That was not an external enemy that picked off stragglers. That's coming literally from within the center of Judaism. And not only that, the central figure in Judaism, because at the end of the day, Aaron makes the golden calf for the people, as we all know the story. That is a quite, in other words, the ideational suggestions that it lays is really kind of heavy. And it shows you that it's not just, it's not true that if you stay within the machna, you have no troubles. If you stay within the machna, if you stay within the cloud, the anani akava, uh, the crowds of glory, if you stay in the sukkah, right? We talk about being in the sukkah. The, the, the golden calf was made in the sukkah, <laughs> right? The golden calf, as they say, was made right there in Harsina. So it's a problem. Uh, it's not if you're in the sukkah, you don't have a problem with a mullock. But if you're in the sukkah, you do have a potential problem with the egel azov, and that is pretty interesting because the egel azov, put in twenty first century terms, because we'll never understand. You and I'll never understand exactly what's going on there. I know all the theories and all the svaras, and you know, obviously, there's no question that it appeared to be some in their mind some kind of Judaism in some way or another. And uh, it's really a very, very interesting subject to pursue. I don't know if my ramblings today will take me in that direction or not. Because I don't have a plan that exactly what to say. Still have to pour them. But I can tell you right now, the, sto- the, the, the story of the Eglazov, uh, however we understand it, is powerful because um, it, if we're told it in the Torah, it means it's part of the you know, constant uh, reality. We have Eglazov problem in our Machna today, and that's the worship of the Zov. At the, to put it in 21st century terms, what was the problem with the worship of the golden calf? The answer is they worship gold. Well, I know a lot of people worship gold, and so do you. And even though they'll deny it, and they'll say it's part of Judaism, right? They'll say, oh, the consumerism that we have, and the partying lifestyle, and all the rest of it, and the Kiddush Rishons, is all part of Judaism. That's what they say about the golden calf also. It's part of Judaism. Elel Achisro. That's what they say, Elel Achisro. And so get out of my hair. Don't bother me. And uh, we know that it was pretty devastating. As a matter of fact, if we ask ourselves the following question, which caused more damage to Klal Yisrael? Was it the attacks of Amalek, or was it the Eglazov they made? The answer, of course, is the worst is the Eglazov that they made. It's, it's, it's really interesting, <laughs> you know? And so you have two paradigms, the external problem, the internal problem. 
Is that not part of the Jewish sociology in every generation? We Jews always have to keep in mind, wherever we are, there's, you know, Zecher is, uh, is Amalek, right? Zecher is Ashok Amalek, that Amalek is a constant. Uh, when I was young, anti-Semitism was, seemed more on the wane. Uh, but nobody would suggest that today. So Zecher is Ashok Amalek, you don't need any uh, explanations or fancy interpretations as used to be fashionable when I was very young. Uh, today, you look around, you see Amalek all over the place. But that's not the only problem. The other problem is the consumerism and the worship of the material. Uh, in the name of Judaism, which characterizes so much of Orthodox Judaism today, it's just, it's just interesting to me, you understand? It's just interesting. And, uh, uh, you know, I don't see in front of my eyes, I live in Baltimore in a certain neighborhood, you know, you don't see so much. But there are other neighborhoods and there are other places uh, elsewhere. In America, I've been around from place to place. I go speaking, as you know, and uh, you have a gloves up. They're doing, they're doing, they're doing quite well, quite well. Now, um, what is the uh, point of the whole, you know the the denouement of the story? Well, Moshe comes down, breaks the tablets, and ends up destroying the agar. But did he really? Uh, I think we all know that the golden calf reappears later in Jewish history on a permanent basis. Uh, and took down 10 of the 12 tribes. Because, first of all, it may be that Pesel Micha was a golden calf. It's not 100% clear. But when Yeravah ben Nevat founded the kingdom of the north and split the Jewish kingdom in two, thanks to the uh, stupidity and stubbornness of the house of David, so uh, what did he do? He made a golden calf. He actually made two. One in Dun and Basel. And uh, I remember some peers, I think they were Doc, if I'm not mistaken, who says, how could Yeravah ben Nevat get away with that? Uh, the Jewish people just come under Shaul, David, Shlomo. There's three from guys. Uh, you know, so how come he switched everybody? Ten tribes of Kal Yisrael, as they say, of the Shvatim, Shifte Kal. How did ten tribes go and worship a golden calf? How the heck did he do it? And uh, I think it's the Radak, maybe it's the Ralbach, but I believe it's the Radak, who says, listen, Shlomo Melch's time was a peace and prosperity. Ishtachas Gafno, the Ishtachas Teino. The Jewish people were all, were all prosperous. And the kids grew up with a lap of luxury. Uh, he got spoiled rotten. And therefore it was easy to make an appeal for a golden calf. Notice he says the exec, excessive prosperity in the time of Shlomo led to the rise of the cult of the golden calf becoming popular in the next reign, which is the reign of Yeram ben Nebat, which is quite uh, remarkable. And by the way, it's almost like a foreshadowing. If you read the book of Kings, Malachim, what it says about Shlomo, it says, Ain't a kesev that silver was garnished. Uh, it was all, everything was gold. Whatever Shlomo uh, touched was a matter of gold. And if you look in the base of Minx, the way he built it, at least as I recall, I remember he did these funny things where he put the old, he hired these fancy artisans and they created all kind of uh, carvings and uh, designs of wood and then he smeared gold over everything. And I remember they, they, the Kosh Kodashim, the floors were gold, and maybe everything else was gold. So basically, it was one big business with gold, which is kind of strange, because don't we in the Gemara talk about in Kategor and so forth, you know, Kongodal with the white clothes on Yom Kippur. So why Shlomo splashed gold over? As a matter of fact, if I were King Solomon, I would say like this, one thing that's not going in the temple is gold, <laughs> right? No, we've been there, done that, didn't turn out good. One thing we're not doing in the base of Migdash is Kategor saying we're not going to bring gold. Matter of fact, gold should have no 
uh, place whatsoever in Judaism. It had a bad record that it left us back in Parshagis Siso. But it's the opposite of what I just said. Shlomo covers the opening with gold. Matter of fact, he did some silly things for a smart guy. It says he, I remember this, it says he made golden shields uh, for honor guard. Now, a gold shield is oxymoron, right? Because, uh, you know, gold is weak metal. So it's no good as a shield. So it's strictly totally for shtick. You know what I'm saying? Strictly for shtick. Is this really uh, the right way to go? And by the way, what happened to those uh, golden shields? I think I mentioned this before. I must have. If you follow the book of Malachim and Devarayamim, then you see five years after the death of Shlomo, uh, Judah was invaded by an army from Egypt and Jerusalem was captured. Is this right? Captured by an army from Egypt and the pharaoh, uh, what was his name? Shishak, uh, carried off all the gold and silver that Shlomo had, including the golden shields. Whereupon his successor made like bronze shields. So some epics with the shields, they wanted to look like Queen uh, Elizabeth's guards, you know, to march on honor guard and all that kind of business. So the Jewish people are nuts over the gold. Isn't that, that's what it means. And we've been like that ever since. We have a problem with the worship of the golden calf. And uh, the, the, the most strange part is Yisrael. the argument is always going to be made that the gold is part of Judaism. And it wasn't then, it is now. It's, uh, it, it's kind of strange. You understand? Now, we definitely have, within the Jewish tradition, what I would call a, um, what's, it, what's the right word? What's that Greek uh, thing? The, uh, the Stoics. Yeah, we have a Stoic tradition in which you do without. A lot of your famous gadolim you think about didn't need gold and weren't interested in that sort of thing. And they understood the dangers of materialism. But plenty of others, you know, <laughs> don't mind driving around in gold to play Cadillac if you're Rebbe, if you can afford it. It's kind of funny. I'll say it again. You'd think that in the Jewish tradition, there should be a zach. Oh, in my family, we don't wear gold. Oh, in my family, we don't have gold rings. Ah, oh, we don't have gold jewelry. Because it reminds me of Egel Azov. No, you don't see that at all. It's just strange to me, you know. Unless you say that Egel Azov is still around. No, that that type, that, that Yates O'Hara, this materialist business. And of course, we all know, without getting too uh, technical or too personal, just follow the blogs or, you know, find online. The, 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 the Torah world also worship a gold, I'm sorry to say. You know, the honor this person, that person, the Rebbe's, the Yeshiva's, all the rest of it, just because they have the gold. Even though the person themselves, as everybody knows, at the moment they're honoring at the banquet, is not exactly the most praiseworthy individual. Let me leave it at that, okay? That's it. So, yeah, I know, Rebbe, Mechabed, Ashirim, it's necessary to, to, to run the schools, the Yeshiva's, but you do run the problem of passing to the kids the, the, the message that Eglazov, that the, the real God is gold, you know. Uh, Judaism is good, but the real God is gold. You know, if, you, if you want your school, your institution, your yeshiva, your beisach, your seminary to prosper, you have to bow down to the golden calf. Now, the as, as I say, so we're left with two enemies: the outside enemy, which is Amalek, the inside enemy, which is the material, which is the golden calf, which I repeat takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. That's a quite a story, it seems to me, quite a story. Now. Um, let me say this. Uh, the follow-up, of course, is Moshe comes down, as we all know, I mean, I don't have to tell you this, and breaks the tablets and gets rid of the golden calf, and uh, he's angry at uh, Aaron, as a whole story. But then he goes and talks to God, and he has that remarkable encounter, which I'll tell you the truth, I don't think I have the energy to go through it today. It's really, like, the most interesting part of Chumash, because that's where Moshe reaches his closest encounter with the divine, 
and reaches the level of a certain mysticism that we don't know what the heck we're talking about when we read these sukkim. For example, I'm just opening at random. After the, when it's all over, it says the motion moves his ten out of the uh, the machna, and uh, which is interesting, by the way, he moves his ten outside the machna, and then what does it say that he would speak with God, uh, and and Hashem uh, We don't know what that means. What do you mean he'll speak with God? Pun him upon him. Uh, that's probably the most mystical passage in the high entire Chumash. Don't you agree? But dear Rosh Hashanah, he spoke face to face. What does that mean? Now, uh, the question always comes when you get these expressions. Are they literal or rhetorical? If they're rhetorical, then they're completely not literal. It's very easy simply to say, is it rhetorical? Uh, the Unculus says, Mamlal le Mamlal. Which means Moshe, not punim el punim, but dibor el dibor mamlo and mamlo dibor in dibor. That's not what it says, but you know you want to say like well it can't mean face to face, and so it just means you know dibor to dibor, which is pretty good too. Uh, the targum Yonason is kind of really interesting here. You know when I say Yonason, I mean the targum Yishalmi, of course. What you what is referred to when the Mikra's Gedol is incorrectly is the targum Yonason, because Yonason didn't do the one in the Chumash. I've said that before. But anyway, that target we have on the other side of Mikris Gadol says, speech to speech, he heard something, right? But he didn't see anything. So it says, <laughs> so basically, he flipped it, the Targum. It says, upon him, upon him, he said, well, he heard, he didn't see. It just said he saw, upon him, upon him. What does that mean? Unless you say, Panim el panim. I don't know how to. I'm just playing with this now with you. I'm just playing. What is panim el panim? Usually we say my face to your face. Uh, so in English you go face to face. But pun, it doesn't say panim klape panim or panim lip panim. It's a panim el panim. Perhaps it means one face is looking at the other face, but the other face is not looking at the first face. My panim is looking at yours. Yours is not looking at mine. It's it's unclear, that language, at least to me. I'm just sharing you my uh, take on it. I could be wrong. Uh, obviously, in some ways, probably am. Punim el punim. Isn't that an interesting expression? Does, in other words, what I'm raising with you is the following way. How do you translate it? Does punim el punim mean one face looks at the other face and the other face looks at the first face? Or does it mean one face looks at the other face and nothing is said about the face that is looked at? In which case, that would be beautiful. Punimel, I don't see anybody translate that way. But that is the most Pasha way of understanding it, even though it's not Pasha. God speaks to Moses face to face. Meaning, God sees Moses. Punim el punim. But of course, Moses doesn't see God. And that is followed up in the following story, where Moses says, let me see your face. And God says, you can't see my face. So punim el punim. Do you get what I'm saying? Punim means A sees B, but B doesn't see A. It doesn't use the words exactly that the two faces saw each other. I, I, maybe some Pirish says that. I don't know. You know, it makes sense to me. That's that's the best I can come up with. Uh, to, to the degree that it's uh, at all, you know, means what it says. Unless you say it's strictly uh, rhetorical and you end up with these other explanations, which aren't very satisfying in terms of the Pashup shot. But Punim upon means Punim upon him. But on the other hand, a minute later, Moshe says, you know, let me see your face, let me know your ways, and Hashem says, you know, that's all in this week's parsha, as we all know, and if whoever sees my face dies, 
Uh, I would simply throw this at you. Uh, even if Moshe saw God's face, which didn't happen, even if he saw God's face, what would that mean? Whatever he would see would just be an image or, or, or an idea, perhaps even, which is not God, because God created every single image and God created every single idea. That's the definition of God, creator of everything. And so whatever you see would be a created thing. So that itself would not be God. So in effect, you'd be looking at a golden calf. You'd be looking at something which is supposed to be a God, which isn't a God. Did I confuse you now? Uh, I don't intend that, to, but I could see that it would happen. Anything you think of about Hashem isn't true. Even if you tell me God's invisible, that's also not true, because God created the idea of invisible. Even if you tell me that you know God is like a, a, a nothing, nothing is also a created concept, you understand? There is nothing that doesn't exist. And even that word doesn't work. Now, I know it can drive you crazy. I get that. And uh, you have to be like in the morning of to, you know, appreciate the cuteness of all that. But it's not, it's not incorrect, right? It knows it's, it's not false, which is what God means when he says, no one can see my face. Not that it's hidden away and no one can see it. By definition, if you understand, you think I have a face, it doesn't work. But on the other hand, Moses is speaking God upon him upon him. So I think, like I said before, all I can share with you is the best thing that comes up to me. I think the upon him upon him is a great phrase because it can mean one A saw B, but B didn't see A, right? Uh, in which case, you do get the, exp the feeling, the, you know, what shall I say, the rhetorical effect. Not what Rashi and the others say the rhetorical effect is, which is something completely different. Mamla la mamla. But to get the rhetorical effect of a certain closeness. And that's what they want to, you know, convey in my opinion, is my take. That punim al punim is certain directness, even though it's not. I repeat again, it's not. Can't, can't be. But as Hashem said later on, you know, I speak to Moshe, pel pel daverbo, Omar Bechidus, when he screams at an, an hour and a Miriam. Pel pel daverbo. Again, you know, it's a sort of a, a, a more direct, less indirect. Um, but at the end of the day, it's a, it's a mystical phrase. And whenever you deal with mystical phrases, don't try to impose logical interpretations on it, even though everybody, including I, have, can't help it. We have like a weakness that we want to impose some kind of logical, shot logical interpretation on it. You, you, you're like automatically drawn to that. But you realize when you're a true mystic that logic is not an appropriate tool to try to comprehend the non-logical and the mystical. Uh, this has always been the classic Jewish critique of metaphysics. The Kuzari makes this, you know. Who says that logic and all this kind of stuff that you and I use in this world, which is based on mathematics and things like that, is an appropriate tool for kind trying to comprehend the world which is not meta, which is not physical, which is not subject to to math and you know it's metaphysical. There's no it does exist, but it's not. There's no time and, pl and space. Uh, so it's uh, some heavy stuff that I'm throwing at you today, but the Parsha throws it in there. And uh, you end up with the story that the Jewish people are... Let, let me put it this way. If you follow what I just said, and if what I said is true in any degree, do you understand how difficult it is to have the first understanding of what God is? And you understand, therefore, that 99% of the Jewish people are always going to be worshipping some kind of false image. Because as soon as you see the word Hashem, you either think of a guy or a person or a beard or a force or anything, or even you think great nothing. is Whatever you think of, by definition, is wrong. So, at that time, the Klaus also says, if that's the case, the heck with it, let's make a golden gift. It's as good as anything, and we like gold. You see? Whatever you think of is a, is a kind of idolatry, kind of a Buddha Zorro. 
Only Moshe, perhaps, is pale, pale upon him, upon him. And again, if I were to apply logic, although I shouldn't, based on what I just said, but if I apply logic, it means Moshe is comprehending when he's communicating with the divine that any image or notion even that he has of what's coming at him is, is incorrect. So it's basically a conversation punctuated by asterisks in which they say, this is Lavdafka and this is Lavdafka. Literally, it's not true. Whatever I'm thinking of, it's not true. Whatever I'm thinking of, it's not true. As I, and that's the greatest truth. So it's Panim El Panim and Pe El Pe. Uh, from the, and, and by the way, the proof that the logic doesn't work is the story of the Parsha this week because logically the Jews don't deserve to be forgiven. And Hashem does anyway. And Moshe is blown away. He says, I didn't know this, you know. And it, it, it doesn't make any sense. God was introducing in this week's Parsha the concept of grace that I've mentioned many times, which is the Kali's role in itself is like a hypostatic reality. And in and of itself, regardless of how many mitzvahs or whatever Averis they did, they're deserving of a special pass, a special grace, which Moshe, you know, has trouble comprehending. But on the other hand, I just tried to reduce it to some kind of logical theorem. You know, later on, God will punish the Jews and say, I'll never get over this. So make up your mind. Did you forgive me? You didn't forgive me. Are you getting over it? You're not getting over it. Those are logic questions. And we're always trapped with the problem of trying to, of the limitations of logic when you're trying to understand the, the, the metaphysical or, or, or the spiritual. And I like uh, the ambiguity, which is fascinating to me, expressed by the, the Chizkuni, who was one of these uh, French uh, commentators from the 1100s, I guess, you know, time of the Rajbam. And when he said, Punim, Punim, I just saw this, opening up the uh, Mikris Goza in front of me. Listen to this. The Chizkuni says, what does it mean? God speaks in punim and punim. Any yodea im hagavoa hishpiel atzmo, o hashafol higbi atzmo. I can't tell whether the gavoa, which is God, lowered himself, or Moshe, the, which was the shuffle, raised himself. Okay, and uh, is he quoting from somebody? I I, I don't know. Uh, and he has Amrabi Yeshua Kavyachol hagavoa here here kines atzmo. It's God that lowered himself. Now, what does that mean? God lowers himself and Moshe raised himself. Obviously, we're not talking physically. So, punim al punim, does that mean God lowered himself to make himself under similar to Moshe in some way? Or does it mean that Moses transcended normal humanness to go up to to God? If you think about this uh, philosophically, it's not possible for Moshe. I repeat, even Moshe Rabbeinu, the greatest person, it's not possible to, you know, be, what's, what's the expression, magbia yourself on the shuffle. You can only do it in relative terms. So, Look what, I'm simply throwing this at you to say, today's Wednesday, you got told Shabbos, um, this is the part you want to zero in, and I'm just giving a suggestion, this is the part you want to zero in if you have any time to concentrate in this week's Parsha, what is going on with this pun pun business, you know what I'm And, uh, you know, if God is beyond comprehension, etc., etc., so what is going on in Parsha, because something's going on. Right? And uh, there's a process going where God is angry and then God is appeased and then he forgives them, then he doesn't forgive them, he's uh, resentful, and then Moshe says, don't be resentful, you know. This is a, an argument between uh, like a husband and a wife, you know, honeymooners or something like that. Doesn't sound like a philosophical, uh, you know, conversation. But who says the Bible's been philosophical? That's what I'm trying to say. When you, this is mystical stuff. When you get to the mystics, then um, uh, the usual rules for analysis don't work. 
Now that just killed all the Dvar Torahs, because every Dvar Torah in the world is based on an attempt to find some logical understanding of a phenomenon in the Torah, phenomenon in the Chumash. It's hard for people to reconcile themselves that the following story is not susceptible you know, to a, a, a ra- rational or normal uh, kind of interpretation. But uh, there you have it. So it's kind of interesting. So I leave you with the two images. Which do you think is a bigger problem in America today for the Jews? Is it a Moloch or is it a golden calf? And with that, I bid you a waning Shushan Purim and a, uh, have a good Shabbos. I hope to get to the other podcast by the end of the week, but I've got to clear my head first.